Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. We are reading through the Bible this year with Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV. And on this show, we aim to discuss big topics that pop up as we're reading through the Bible. And we also interact with your questions and comments as well. You guys send us amazing discussion questions and discussion discussion points. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Matlock, what, uh, what scripture we were supposed to read this week? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm glad you're glad I there we go. <laughs> Today we read, we're supposed to read Matthew 19 to Mark 4. Now, if you didn't read that, we're going to talk about some questions relating to that, specifically on Matthew 24 is the big hunk of the questions. Of, yeah, yes. lots of Matthew 24 today. Lots of end times things, um, lots of questions regarding uh, Christ's knowledge, and also where was he when he, uh, when he died, when he descended into hell, uh, or is it Hades, or was it Sheol, what, did, what happened? Questions related to that. But first, also, the big question is, mm-hmm. to get into that, is Matthew 24 about the end times or the fall of Jerusalem? Right. Dun, dun, right. Dun. Yeah, is right. it future to come is it, or is it all about AD 66 That's to right. That's right. So that's the big question, guys. So, but first off, Corey. Yes. Let's start this roll. All let's, right. Let's, let's get this it. ball rolling. Let's do okay. It. I'll start asking the first question. It's related to Matthew 24. Okay. Okay. So, ho- uh, this is from Lisa. Hoping you can give me some understanding. Looking to understand why the church believes in a pre-tribulation rapture. All these scriptures point me to the same timeline, which is Matthew 24, 29 to 31, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17, and Revelation 11 to uh, 15. The event where we and the dead are caught up will happen at the last trumpet. I do not understand how John Nelson Darby came to this understanding. Can you provide me with additional scriptures or insights? All right, Lisa. Yeah, so this is the classic, you know, where did the dispensational understanding of eschatology come from? And um, really, there are no other uh, main scriptures that I can give you. I mean... There's, there's the Old Testament prophets. I mean, Daniel gets wrapped up into the interpretation of Matthew chapter 24 and, and Mark 13 and, and, and things like that. Uh, but, but really, I think on face value, it's just different understandings of what these scriptures mean. And you're right in that, uh, like the dispensational view didn't really come to its full for, full fruition until the 1800s with with Darby. Um, I know this question was answered by my dad as well. And you'll see if you watch his answer to it and you watch my answer to it, you'll see right away a main difference between me and my dad. I, I, I am not, I would not say that I'm a dispensationalist in my eschatological beliefs. So my, my beliefs on the end time on the end times. Uh, so in terms of looking to understand why the church believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, I would say there are a plethora of reasons. Uh, a lot of people now, you know, this, this view really took off. Uh, there's a lot of books that discuss the different end time views of the modern church. There's one, I can't remember who it's written by. It's called The Millennial Maze. And it's really, really good at at uh, kind of showing you the growth and the progression of different views up until today into the to the mixing pot that we kind of have today of beliefs on the end times. There's also um, the, the really good four view series where there's um, four views on the rapture, four views on the end times. These books are really good primers. So I can't, there's not a ton of time to go into you know, all of that information. But but one thing I will say is that I think a lot of us, because this is a mainline view in the church, 
dispensationalism, I mean, I think it becomes the default view of a lot of Christians just because that's what they're comfortable with and that's what they've grown up with. And there's nothing wrong with that concept. But then as you make your faith more your own and as you read the Bible, we have to allow the Bible to change our views regardless of what we have received. And some people choose to change their views of eschatology based on the on what they're reading in the Bible and other people don't. They stick with the view that they were raised with, whether that's dispensationalism or or uh, millennialism or, or whatever the case may be, depending on what church you go to. Now, personally, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up uh, in Baptist churches, Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal church, a Baptist church, and a non-denominational church. And the, the eschatological position that I was taught as a young person and grew up with was dispensationalism. And as I grew in my faith, I began to read the Bible more and more. I began to challenge some of those views because the scripture in my mind did not, the more I studied and the more I looked at the cultural background of the Bible and the more that I, I kind of tried to parse out what the original intent of the apostles were and, and Jesus was when he was teaching, you know, Matthew 24 and, and in First Thessalonians and, and some of the, the verses that you've quoted, I moved away from a dispensational point of view, and I've landed more into historic premillennialism. Which, which, just to add to that, it's very similar to premillennialism, because they're both premillennial. They both believe that Christ returns at the beginning of a thousand years. Yes. Of of his thousand year reign, right? There will be some sort of literal, earthly, bodily reign of Christ. Right. The difference is, is that in a historic premill view, versus a, uh, a dispensational one, is that there's no rapture that happens before the Great Tribulation. Yeah, so right. in, in dispensationalism, you you end up essentially with two raptures. You end up with one before, and then you end up with one after, right? Yes. Christ returning to Earth. Whereas in historic premillennialism, it is one. It's one and the same, right? right. Which is what I, what I personally think we see in the scripture. I, I think we see one final trumpet. I think we see one final return of, one final return of Christ in which we receive um, our glorified bodies and, and are with him. So yeah, right. the, the difference on those two is, but it's also how you view the scripture yeah, uh, and how you interpret the scripture uh, in and of itself. But yes, I would say like uh, that the main headline issue would be one sees you going through the tribulation, one sees you not going through the tribulation. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, but what I really want to emphasize is that people get really, really riled up about this issue. Uh, I've even been involved in conversations where people have insinuated that I have lost my salvation. Uh, and, and most people wouldn't go that far, but I think, I think when emotions start flying, you know, you know, things happen in this way. And, and I just want to take, you know, if this is one of those issues, because there are those issues for us personally where we get really involved emotionally. And if this is one of those issues for you, I would encourage you to kind of take a step step back. I have issues where, you know, I am personally affected by them as well. This isn't one of them, uh, but there are other theological issues that when it comes to the scripture, scripture, where because of my past experiences, I have a lot of emotional baggage (laughs) when it comes to discussing them. And we really have to take a step back, take a deep breath and try to approach these faithfully, faithfully to the scriptures. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what my dad thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. It matters what the truth is. And we know that there is a truth. There is something in the future that is going to happen 
we just don't have perfect knowledge of it yet. And we're going to get more into that when we approach the big question of Matthew 24. But I want to encourage you, if here on Bible Discovery, my literal immediate family can hold different eschatological views, if the cast of Bible Discovery can hold various views on the end time and still work together in a very tight-knit way, in a very supportive way, I know it's possible uh, in the broader church as well. We just have to kind of get over ourselves, remember who our authority is, which is God, not our own ideas, and allow the love of God to, to cover any offenses. Yeah, so that I, would be my encouragement. Yeah, and I think what's important there, what you're highlighting, is I think that's everything you said is fantastic. I think what's really important to highlight there is that Literally, you talk about Justin Martyr. He's saying, I hold to, he's, he believed in historic pre mill. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's like, I believe this, but there are others who do not. Yes. And they're still brothers. Yes. And you think about that, that's during the time of Christ. Okay. That was like, okay. That was literally at that time period within the 100s, uh, before the 100s, excuse me. Anyways, my point in saying that is that Paul says we look through a glass dimly in regard to prophecy. Mm -hmm. So we know that these things are going to happen, but we don't have the full details. Every Christian believes that Christ is returning yeah. bodily. They all believe that. It's just a matter of when. So I don't think there's a reason to get angry or upset as if you've lost your hope. If you lost your, it's not yeah. nothing like that. It's just a matter of what do you think the data, the, the biblical data says best align, what best aligns with which view. So Corey thinks that the the biblical data best aligns with the historic pre mill view. And I think that, you know, is, is a fair position to take, mm -hmm. considering that we're not all-knowing, all right? We're not all-knowing. And, and historically, this has always been an open thing that we can discuss. It's never been like, if you don't believe in this, therefore, you lost your salvation, you lost your faith. It's never been that. Because, yeah, you're, you're a lesser Christian. Right. You have a lesser... That's, because uh, everyone's that's holding... That's such a dangerous road to Everyone's holding the core values, yeah. right? Now, if it does become like that, I think that become, can become dangerous. Absolutely. Because then you're now saying, well, God's going to do it my way. It's like, hold on. God's, even Jesus said, I don't know the day or hour. So because if he said that, you've got to have some humility too. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I, Corey, I think what you said is good. Uh, we don't have to get into detail if you don't want to, but the other views. I think we can just move on to the next yep, question. Yeah, I say we move on to the next question. Right, let's do that. All right. We're going to Matthew 24, verse 36. If the Father is the only one who knows the day and hour that Jesus of Jesus' return, yet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one, doesn't it seem sensible to expect that they would all have the exact same knowledge of the past, present, and future? Any help you could provide would be greatly appreciated. This is from Renee. Yes, yes, Renee. Okay. 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 So uh, it, it may seem sensible to expect that they would all have the exact same knowledge of the past, present, and future, but we know through Jesus's own teaching in the scripture that that was not the case, that Jesus, uh, he, he set aside parts of the Godhead to limit himself to humanity four times. So when he is, so that enables him to be telling the truth when he says, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Okay, so I, I want to uh, bring you to Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8, which was the apostles' teaching on this, right? Perfect. Um, okay. okay, here we go. Um, verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's just this idea that Jesus set aside aspects of the Godhead in order to have a real experiential human life here on earth, though admittedly, a different one than us because he 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 did not sin and, and he was uh, still part of the Godhead. So there is a mystery that's wrapped up in the Trinity. I mean, you go back and you read through church history, uh, even in the limited sense that I have, and you see this mystery being talked about by, you know, countless ages of Christians where we hold in tension this fact that, you know, this can be true and we cannot fully understand it. At the same time, there is a mysterious element to it. But uh, but, you know, Jesus was very upfront with the fact that he didn't have all knowledge uh, when it, especially in this area. So that's right. what I would say. No, I think Anything that's good. To add? No, I, I actually had Philippians 2 written down. Um, I think that we can make the mistake by making this too philosophical to try to get answers out of. Um, I think that what you have here is that Christ came down as a humble servant, right, to do the Father's will. So what was out there in the fa- Father's will and purpose, that's what he knew to do. Yeah. It was not in his mm-hmm. will and purpose, the yeah. fathers, to to know this event. Yes. So so everything was re- was restricted to his uh, to the father's will and what Christ's purpose in here on earth to do. So he had perfect knowledge in that sense. Right. Like you said, he emptied himself. The full extent of like how does God empty himself? Does he empty himself of his attributes? Like, I, I'm not inclined to say that. Um, could he empty himself of a certain particular event? Possibly. Uh, but one thing is we know is that part of this emptying process was that. He veiled his glory. So people, yeah. right? So, so a lot of this is being veiled. In mm-hmm. other words, people could not see that he was God. Right. But in, but in Christ's prayer in John 17, restore me, Lord, to, to the position I had before the foundations of the world. Right? He wanted in his former glory. So he, it was his Godhead was veiled. And I think that's part of this thing where things are being veiled for humans. And that's sort of what this emptying process means. Again, it's a mystery. So I don't want to be like dogmatic on our philosophical positions. Go ahead. Yeah. And another thing I realized as I was, as we were kind of talking about this, Renee, that we didn't uh, talk about the Holy Spirit because uh, Christ talks about how only the Father has that knowledge. So uh, we we understand why Christ wouldn't have that knowledge, but why wouldn't the Holy Spirit have that knowledge? And uh, what we do know is that the the Trinity is relational, right? So it's 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 one being, but but three different persons within that being, um, one God, but three persons. Uh, but we when when we're asking why wouldn't the Holy Spirit also have that knowledge, I think what we have to do is look at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. What is his role? What what is he called to do? Um, And we see in John 14 that Christ had to leave bodily so that the Holy Spirit could come. And, uh, you know, in John 14, Jesus lays out what the role, the job, what what the Holy Spirit does for us, right? Uh, in verse 25 of John 14, it says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit's role is to reinforce the teachings of Christ. It's to reinforce and 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 expand and help us to understand 
who Christ was, what he did, what he taught, and what that means for our lives. So I think, I think it's a very safe extrapolation out from that, that we're not supposed to know the day or the hour when Christ is coming. We're not supposed to know. And we could theorize all sorts of reasons for that. Um, I think there's a couple obvious ones, but, um, but we're not supposed to know. And so the Holy Spirit's role is to help us remember and understand the teaching of Christ. Uh, and Christ, he had emptied himself. So in that physical form, or not empty, set him, set parts of the Godhead aside. I don't want to be misinterpreted there. I don't want to misspeak there. Um, so yeah, Christ didn't have all knowledge because he had set that part of his Godhead aside. And the Holy Spirit, it's not his role. It's not his job to know that. So there's a relational element within the Trinity. And I think we can extrapolate out of it that we're just not supposed to know. Right. And I know some people are often, un a lot. there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the concept of Christ not being all knowing. Mm -hmm. because he's God, right? And um, the important thing to remember is that Christ voluntarily, yeah. willfully chose yeah. not to have it temporarily. Mm -hmm. It's not like Christ did this forever. He's Forever he's not all-knowing anymore. It was a temporal thing to become a humble servant, to become a man, right? Yeah, to, right? yeah. So that's to be fully man. And that's what's to redeem mankind. So in that process, Christ is, this is him showing his full humanity. And what so, we see, what we see through history, what we see through Christ coming, what we see now, what is still unfolding, is God's, God, the Trinity's plan of salvation <coughs> for mankind, right? right. So they have, like, God has a plan going on. And, um, and, and the Trinity has, has roles that they have decided in, 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 in God's, amazing knowledge and strength and power to enact this plan. And so that's what's going on, right? There yeah. is a plan and we're watching it unfold. That's right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think, do you have anything else that you want to add? You know what? No, I, I, I don't want to go too deep into this because we're dealing with, um, it's, it's quite a big topic when you start opening up. It's like, well, how do you explain how... Uh, how does the inner functioning of the Trinity... Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. That, that's what I was saying. I mean, you go back and you read through church history, church history, and generations of Christians have wrestled with this and come to the conclusion that there are just some things that are mysterious you, to our human You have to leave point. it as mystery. There are... Yeah. Like, for instance, people, are, like I said, are uncomfortable saying that he's not all-knowing. They'll say, well, he knew everything, but he just chose not to know this one. Okay, fine, if you want to put it that way. Um... It's a very complex thing to say because it's not like knowing is something that you do. It's right. it, you just have it. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. It's right. It's it's a so it's it's a very people have tried to figure out ways of doing it. So it's I don't want to go too deep into that because then that'll be the whole talk for today. So <laughs> I think that how you word it is fine. We we rest in God in the mystery of the Trinity. We rest in that, and that we keep going forward. You know, one day maybe someone can talk about it and explain it very succinctly, succinctly and simply. But for now, <laughs> it's just too big of a topic, I think, to to dig into. Sure. So I think it's good. But I think those I think those are some, some I think diving those are good. words and yes, I think so as well. The function of the Holy Spirit, you know, his his the purpose of what is it? The purpose of humanity and the overall roles that they have decided to play. It, that that uh, when I say they, I just mean the right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean God. I mean He. Right. I mean one. Uh, but the, the different the the roles that God has decided to play in 
the salvation right. history of mankind. Right. The, the plan. It also has. does indicate something because if if Jesus, who's fully man, fully God, if he chooses not to know something, mm-hmm. then that really tells us that we shouldn't know it. Yeah. That that really says that it, it gives, should be it very gives humbling. Us, it should be very humbling. Gives us limitations. So when we start saying, "Oh, Christ is going to do this. He's going to do that," when we start being he knowing, has to do this. Yeah. Otherwise, I the, the most dangerous thing that I've ever heard someone say is, if he doesn't do it this way, I don't want to serve. I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't want to serve that. And I'm like, whoa. That, that's, if he doesn't do it the way that you think he should do it, you wouldn't see, serve to him. Me, that you're, means you're, you're not, all, wait, hold on. That means you're not serving God. Actually, you're serving yourself. You're serving exactly. your own idea of God. So these things that come out of us in debates like this, yeah. we need to be really self-reflective on the things that we say and on the beliefs that we hold because mm. anything can become an idol for us, right? Any idea that we have can become an idol. So there's this constant um, need for humility in the life of the Christian and this constant need for prayer and interaction with God where where we're, we're bringing our lives before God and we're asking him to show us areas in our life that maybe are strongholds against him. Maybe there's there's pride or arrogance or, or a sin that we need to be dealing with God. And he does. Like he will point it out to you. He'll bring it to your attention for you to work, that's work right. with him. I think that's good. So. All right. Let's okay, Matt, look, I'm, I'm going to move on. on. I have a viewer question for you. Sure. From Matthew chapter 27 oh, and 28. It's a bit of a long one. All right. It's from Brian P. He All says, right. in the Bible, Jesus says, like Jonah in the belly of the whale, he will be down for three days and three nights. But churches teach that Jesus died on, on the Friday. And the Bible says Jesus died in the afternoon and rose early morning on Sunday. This was this would mean he was gone for three days and two nights, not three days and three nights. Does this mean Jesus really died on a Thursday afternoon? Did Jesus die during or before the Passover? Is Passover one day or a whole week? <laughs> okay. Was the Last Supper a Passover meal? Please help me with these questions. Thank you. Thank you again. And thank you once more. All right. So let's start I off like with the... I like the triple thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I see what that. you did there, Brian. <laughs> see what you did there. All right. So um, first off, let's start with... The, let's make it, this really easy. So yes, Jesus died on the Friday. He rose on the Sunday. He rested on the Saturday, which is the Sabbath. That's when he died, went down to hell or Hades or Sheol. We'll talk about that. Anyways, um, but what does it mean? Did he die for three days, three nights? Uh, yes, because the Jewish day started at basically, let's say, midnight. We still do this. So he starts at the nighttime. So he went down for Wait, night. Sundown, sundown, really. Sundown, mm-hmm. sundown. But either way, the point here I'm trying to say is from sunset to sunset. So that means on the Friday, beginning of Friday was, the, was this night. It was crucified, yeah. Then day, then night, then day, then night, then day. And he rose early morning Sunday. So that's three days and three nights, right? Now, the no one until recently was particular about three days, three nights equaling 24 exact nanosecond. Yeah, <laughs> time. that's it was not just, an issue. It's not an issue. It was in just, the it, and people would also say on the third day he rose, right? So in other words, it just, he rose. He was dead part of Friday. He was dead all Saturday. He was dead part of Sunday. That's right. Three days. So three days. And he rose right, during the, on, on the daylight, right? It's time of daylight, on sun, sunrise. So anyways, the point, sunrise, he rose. There you go. So anyways, the point here to make is, is that no one throughout history was particular about the exact nanoseconds that were required to fulfill three days and three nights. Mm-hmm. It was just a matter of, did he rise and die? Did he rise in the third day or not? And the answer is yes, he did. So I think that helps that. That, that that's how everyone's always interpreted. It was not about the scientific exactitude of the days. It was just about whether or not he rose in three days, not necessarily 
for the exact span of. Anyways, so over the course of. Now, the next question. Uh, does this mean Jesus really died on a Thursday afternoon? No, died on a Friday. Did Jesus die during or before the Passover? Well, and is the Passover one day or a whole week? Well, we know that from Exodus that the Passover was a week. You would take a lamb with you for a week. But the Passover meal was one day. And was that, at the end of the was week. at the end of the week, which was, you know, the Friday night. Anyway, the Friday before uh, Sabbath. All right, so yes, it was. No, this, this is, a, believe it or not, was the last Supper Passover meal. And let's connect to this. Was this, is actually a really debated topic in church history. And without going to the nooks of crannies of this, because I really don't like doing that, I believe it was supposed to be a narratival continuation from the Passover, what the Passover meant at, at the time of Exodus, because Christ is dying in the Passover week and everything, right? He died on the Sabbath and everything, during the Passover Sabbath, all things, and death passed over Israelites, right? The same context. That is now being carried over into the Christian tradition. So yes, it is, but it's also something new. It's like two, it's both and. Um, it's a Passover meal. It's also the continuation of the new communion that's to come. So it's, it's a little bit of both because I just think that's how Christ is continuing on the, his plan of salvation through humanity. Now, it's debated in history, like I said, because it's not exactly the way people want it to be, but it is what it is. I, it's a Passover meal, I believe. So yeah, well, it, se- yeah. it seems very much to be the Passover yeah. meal. Uh, we we see Jesus, you know, in the Gospels, going uh, go going to Bethany in preparation for the Passover, and then uh, he, you know, has that Last Supper, and then I mean, it, it seems very much seems very much so yes. to be that. So you've got yeah. I, I, well, in, in 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 biblical terms, we've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they eat unleavened bread for seven right. days, and then it's capped off with a Passover meal, and then the next day is a sacred assembly on the Sabbath. Right. So it seems like very strongly much like it's a Passover meal. Yep. But once again, it's the carrying forward. <clears throat> they're not eating lamb. They're eating bread, right, and drinking wine. It's carrying forward the the meaning of the Passover into communion. That's the idea. Anyways, yeah. the meaning is carrying over. It's the festival and all that stuff. Anyways, so I think that is just is important. So you have to look at it more like a narrative and not just like a like blocks. Anyways, fair enough. I think that does that answer it all. I don't know. I tried to do it as as fast as I could. Yeah, I think yeah, that's I, pretty fair. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, Brian. If you have any follow up questions, if we didn't answer that uh, to your liking or, no. or or something, just shoot us another email or or write in the it's comments. It's nice that you used we. Instead of Matlock. If Matlock didn't answer that to your liking. It's oh. the married we <laughs> rather than the royal we. That's good. We are married. It's fine. That's we. good. Okay, Matlock, one All more right. question for you from Matthew sure. 27 to 28. Okay, uh, this is from Margaret. Where was Jesus for the three days between his death and his resurrection? All right. Dun, dun, so dun. let me pull this up. First Peter 3, verse 18. Just Peter bringing the controversy. Bringing in the controversy. Okay. <laughs> so the, this the, Peter just just going the for Apostles it. Creed said he descended into hell. Okay. Just very. But we're going to talk about what this means. So First Peter three is generally what is referenced here for this. Yes. So for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, 
were brought safely through the water. All right, so you see that contrast there where some people were saved and some people weren't. So he spoke, he went down to the depths of hell or Hades or Sheol. Okay, or, or Abraham's Did bosom. Did you say death? Yeah. And he preached, the, <laughs> he preached the people there, right? So long story short, there's, uh, it depends how you look at this. So some people believe that hell is an overarching term that, um, that means, and that includes death. So it's like, oh, he went to descended to hell, and, but he went to a certain part in hell, which would be called Hades or Sheol, let's say. Others believe that hell is a distinct place from Hades. In other words, Hades and Sheol. Hades is the Greek term meaning death. Sheol is the Hebrew term for death, so that people often parallel those. And then hell is independent of that. Hell is for like the unrighteous, all right? And then there's Abraham's bosom, or let's say even paradise, which is for the righteous. And they're just waiting there. And then that would include Sheol. Anyways, so some people think there's a, there's a distinction there. Um, so it really just depends on, you know, what you want to take. I'm not going to get, I don't really, haven't studied this too far to say that, he, that hell is necessarily a completely separate place and entirely from Hades. Uh, I think it's either way. You have Hades and Sheol. There's categorically the same thing. One is Greek, one is Hebrew. They mean each other. Hell is something, Gehenna, right? The lake of fire is also different from hell itself. So there is a distinction there um, to be made. As long as there's a distinction that's made, how that underworld works, <laughs> it's kind of beyond my pay grade. Um, either way, so you have, uh, in the Old Testament, you have Abraham's bosom, and you also have paradise, where these ideas were, the, like I said, the righteous went. And that's where a lot of people believe that Jesus Christ went to proclaim and brought those people from death to paradise, to heaven. Anyways, so yes, the answer is, where was Jesus for three days between his death and resurrection? Preaching the gospel to those in Sheol or Hades. Um, and then, so not necessarily the place of the damned who are condemned. Um, so that's what people would say. Now, could there be crossover? Could he went, like the Apostle Creed says, down to hell to preach the gospel, right? Were, there, were they all together in hell? There's a lot of people who believe that it was all one. So Sheol was one place for the righteous and unrighteous just waiting uh, for the separations to happen. And then Christ separated them by drawing them out from the righteous from out of Sheol into paradise, therefore rendering death um, hell itself. So again, when you have a, a greater narrative in context, it helps also understand these different things a little bit more clearly. And that also fits with the final lake of fire, where um, uh, it says in Revelation, where the, the death, the sea, is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time, having ultimate separation from God. So death itself is ultimately thrown in there. So there is a separation point where God brings those, the righteous, out of there and into, um, per, uh, into heaven. So that's what he was doing in those three days. That's what we believe. Now, if there's other things I'm not aware about, um, I don't, yeah, I, there might be other, like, a reason why you're asking this question. I'm not too sure. But it's important, though, to keep in mind the distinction between where the unrighteous are and the righteous are, because even in Luke, Oh, what is it? Chapter 16, verse 26. Um, there's a great chasm that's between the unrighteous and the righteous. So as long as Sheol, um, the place, whether or not it was one place and then Christ pulled them all out and then separated the two, there still needs to be a great chasm between where the righteous and the unrighteous are. That's what's important. And um, again, I think that answers the question in a really roundabout, in a very poorly said way, but 
Do you, does that all make sense to you? It does make sense to me. Yeah. Yep. I don't really have much to add because I'm kind of prepping for our big question. Yes. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just sense, being yeah. honest. Yeah. Kind of, so if that, <laughs> my brain is, if is that already didn't going make for... much sense, yeah, there is no wait. If I didn't make much sense. <laughs> Post in the comments if you want some clarification about like what do you mean by the narrative versus what do you mean about like them being two separate things. Anyways, post in the comments and I'll, I'll, I'll write something up and I'll clarify what I need. Anyways, the big question, Corey. The big, the big question. question. Is Matthew 24 about the end times or is it about the fall of Jerusalem? Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Corey, okay, guys. what say you? I am not an expert on eschatology. I do love my history. I do love my Bible history. And I, and I have read several books on 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 interpreting Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to do my best here. This is absolutely a point of contention in my immediate family. A point of discussion, I should say, because again, we hold varying views. But what is my belief about Matthew 24? About the end, Is it the end times or is it about the fall of Jerusalem? I do believe that the biblical evidence and the cultural evidence means leads us to the answer that Matthew 24 is indeed about both. I do believe it is about both. Both the fall of Jerusalem and the what? No, that's because good. Because I'm just saying it so many yeah, times. No, I, I was you, I'm trying you, to be you clear. You really built it up and I thought I thought you're going to go with like it's just historical. No, it's because you're building it up so much. It's like, oh, did you like? Anyways, so, I, you, I you thought my position had changed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's both. Anyways, continue. I kind of freaked Matt like out there. Yeah, I like that. that. Was good. I like yeah. that. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. I, I really do believe it's about both, and here's why. I, I mean, I think I, I think that it's very obvious contextually that it's about both, uh, because Jesus Jesus's disciples ask him about both, and and they may have conflated thinking that Jesus would return when the temple was destroyed, but just as Old Testament prophets deal with, uh, they organize their teachings topically. I think that's what the gospel authors and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's dealing with this topically. And, and even if the apostles, uh, the disciples at this point thought, which I think they did, thought that the destruction of the temple would mean the return of Christ. I think Jesus very clearly brings a distinction between the two um, elements in Matthew chapter 24. So, I mean, um, we see in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Because remember in Matthew 20, 23, Jesus has already prophesied that the temple is going to be destroyed, that not one stone is going to be left on another, right? Uh, verse 2, but he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When will what things be? When will the temple be destroyed? When will not one stone be left on another? And what will the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So when you go back and you look at Jewish teaching, they believed in the, the, the age that we were living and that it would come to an end and then it would be a new age of God, okay? So there's not various ages, many, many ages. There's two ages, this age that we're living in and then the end and then God, okay? So, um, so their question is clear here. When is the temple going to be destroyed and when are you coming back? When is the end of this age? And I think it's really interesting because we often forget that Jesus wasn't preaching in a vacuum and he certainly wasn't preaching in our vacuum. We have 
uh, Christian teaching of the end times, not the Jewish teaching that Jesus and his disciples had uh, when, when Jesus was teaching this. So I'll explain what that means. Uh, verse four, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And I think this is a a big uh, problem that we have in the church today, where we think that we're looking for wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines as signs of the end of time. But Jesus very clearly here in Matthew 24 says, these are not signs of the end. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. Not, and, and I mean, if you're, if you're a woman who's given birth, you know the beginnings of birth pangs are absolutely nothing compared to the end of birth pangs. You know what I'm talking about. They, mm. they, they're not even comparable to the end of birth pangs. And I think what's interesting here is when you look at New Testament scholars, um, I, I think uh, if you could get your hands on the IVP Bible commentary of the New Testament done by Craig Keener, he does a really good job at bringing in um, uh, Jewish teaching from the first century in here, where a lot of Jewish eschatology uh, uh, taught that these things were the birth pangs. They were it. These were the signs of the end of the age. But Jesus is reversing this. He's, he's going, no, these aren't the signs of the end. These, these are going to happen. This is part of life as normal until the end of the age. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. So I think that's really important. Uh, verse nine, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So Jesus is dealing with, it seems, like the end of the age here rather than the end of the temple. But now he's going to talk about the temple specifically. Uh, In verse 15, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he goes on this whole thing about um, not stopping to get your cloak, not going in your house, but if you're on your roof, just leave. Um, so he, Jesus here is referencing the prophet Daniel and, um, the, the abomination, the abomination of desolation has to do specifically with the temple. When you go back and you look at Daniel nine and 12, um, nine, 11 and 12, uh, and there are different views on this. Of course there are, right? So some people see this complete fulfillment in the second century BC, So before Jesus had prophesied this, there was a lot of Jews who thought that Daniel 9, uh, or Daniel 11 rather, had already been fulfilled in the second century by Antiochus Epiphanes, who literally set up an altar to Zeus in the, in the temple of that time, thereby desecrating it. Okay. So, uh, you, um, I mean, that's a legitimate fulfillment. So, but then Jesus says there's going to be essentially another fulfillment. There's going to be an abomination of desolation. Well, was there an abomination of desolation that brought about the fall of the temple in AD 70? 
Absolutely, there was. So the the rebels, the zealots in in eighty six, I think it was in eighty sixty six, actually slaughtered the priests of the temple in the temple. So human blood was spilt in the temple, thereby desecrating it. Which is a lot of Jewish writers and even early Christian writers, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I know Josephus for sure of the first century believed that that's why God allowed the temple to be destroyed because it was desecrated by the blood of the priests. So that abomination of desolation, and then of course the 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 Roman empires, the Roman emperors and and um, generals further desecrated Jerusalem by bringing in the standards into the temple area, the Roman standards that had um, uh, symbols of emperor worship on them. Okay. So uh, how do people deal with this? Some people believe that um, Daniel and um, that Daniel 9, 11, and 12 are essentially fulfilled in stages. So Daniel 9 is when the Messiah gets cut off. So they see that fulfillment in Christ, obviously. And then Daniel um, 11, 31 with the abomination of desolation, you know, that was fulfilled in the second century. And then Daniel 12 may be fulfilled in the future because that talks about specifically the end of the age. But I think, I think what we see here, this is my personal opinion, I think what we see here is an example of a prophecy that is also a type. It's showing us what, what has happened in the past and also what is going to happen more fully in the future. And I think that is very fair because, uh, uh, because Christ hasn't returned in the way that the Bible has said he is going to return. There are some people that say that Jesus did return fully historically in AD 70, but here's the problem. Jesus's return isn't going to be a secret return. Uh, oh. It's not going to be a secret sign in the heavens. And we know that because of Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 27 and 28, right? So Jesus says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. So, and, and even beyond, but I, I just want to focus on this section just for a second, because this, uh, you know, brings in the imagery of the final battle that we see talked about in Ezekiel. I wrote notes 37 and 32, sorry, 32. I knew I was going to get that wrong. That's why I wrote down 32 because I always say 37. It's not. 32 and 39, right? Where everyone's going to know, right? There, there's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not going to be this secret return. What were you yeah. going to say? No, I was going to say that what you're talking about there with Jesus already returned in 8070, that's full preterism. That's just yes, heresy. It is. It is. Right? And it, it's just heresy. Um, and I know even people, Jehovah Witnesses will argue that, that mm -hmm. Jesus isn't, is, it's going to be a symbolic return. Oh, he's not coming back at all. He's not, there's no bodily resurrection, there's no bodily return, all these things. So that's all just heresy. Um, but I think you're doing a good job at highlighting here about why it's, it's a both. Um, because uh, here specifically, you have him talking to like, you are going to be developed in tribulation. These things do happen. Yes. They, they were killed, right? We're not all killed, right? These things did happen. So, uh, it's, so, and they were killed for his name's sake as well. So my point in saying that is that these things did happen here, but this is also, like you're saying, a template, a type of something that else is also is going to happen. Yeah. And that's really important because if he goes on to talk about the Antichrist or yes. the Antichrists, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, we, we see, we even see Jesus fully parse this out. So we see, because the disciples remember, they have asked two questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And when is the end of the age? When are you coming back? Right. And I mean, if you jump down to verses, verses, um, 
32 to 34, Jesus says, from the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch, branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I don't think it's any coincidence that 40 years later, within a generation of Jesus yes. saying that those words, the temple was destroyed. And then but, Christians knew to flee. Yes. That's the key. When when the when the priests were slaughtered in the temple. There were Christian prophets, you can go back in Christian history and read about it, who said to the church, you have to leave now. They said yeah. to Christians, we got to get out of Jerusalem. And it saved a ton of people's lives. And they fled to, I believe they fled to Pella. So they, they which is like a, a, it's at the base of mountains, but they had to, they had to flee through. Wow. They yeah. had to flee through a bunch of, but then, but then Jesus, he doesn't stop there, does it? No. I think we could, I think we could make a case that this was maybe just talking about 80, 70 if it stopped there, but it doesn't stop there. It keeps no. going on. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So he's talking about what? The end of the age, his return, right? Mm. Because he's taught on this before and, and, and it gets taught in the New Testament earlier. And then he, he really stresses the unpreparedness of the people in the days of Noah and, and, the, uh, like, and, and says that people will be unprepared for his return as well. Which yes. For, should not be. This for, should not be the case. For an, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And that's referring to, if the subject of this is the people who are doing evil. Yes, and they're right? going away to judgment. They're yes. going away to judgment. So they will be uh, the coming of the Son of Man. Yep. So, so you have th two things happening here at once. People being swept away by the flood and then people going up in the ark. Two things. You have that. You see that earlier uh, uh, in a, a couple of verses up. Uh, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth, heaven to the other. So you have this double parallel where it's like, okay, people are being swept away by the flood for judgment, mm -hmm. and others are being uh, kept in the ark, so to speak. They're being mm -hmm. saved. And that is that the rapture that, that, that people talk about. But it's at the same time as judgment happens. Yes. They're being swept away. So it's at the same moment that it all happens. And it's when Christ returns. So it's not like, from reading this, it's not like, the people go up yes. and then Christ returns and then everyone, right? It's the people are swept away at the same time. The people go up into the ark and all like the flood, it happens at the same time. So there's no, there's no two processes, but at the same time, um, I think that this case here, like you're saying, very clearly teaches Matthew 24 as both the fall of Jerusalem, which it clearly is right. But also yep, future tense, is. right? Uh, math is also about the end times. Mm -hmm. like it's just a double parallel mm -hmm. right? and a uh, double entendre. Um, double parallel. It's parallel if it is already double. Excuse me. But anyways, so I think, I think you've nailed it on the head here. Um, and I think that also to keep in mind with this, what also ha has to be taken into account is Matthew 25. Sometimes people, Matthew 25 is like the, the parabolic extension of what to expect in this. And mm -hmm. Jesus specifically says at the end of Matthew 24, um, you know, to expect a delay. Mm -hmm. So expect a delay. Right. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect right. him in an hour. That is an know. end of the age stuff. 
that is not dealing with within a generation this is going to happen right mm. so he's answering you're right he's answering two different questions but because they're so similar in their typology right yeah they, and, they, and, 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 and this concept that he's he's not preaching in a vacuum yes. right uh, it, 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 the, it really seems like the disciples tied the destruction of the temple with the with the judgment of God and the return of Christ. Yes, no, it does. So he's, he's he's dealing with that, but he yeah. seems to parse it out. No, he I agree seems with you. to separate it and add add that distinction. Yeah, within it, which I think really really adds clarification to 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 Daniel. Yeah, it does. And and to keep in mind, with this is within the apostles' generation too. So if mm. you were to make it just up to eighty seventy. Right, the apostles falling asleep, all these things. It just, to me, it just doesn't really add up. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you think about the parable of the ten virgins. Like the parable of the ten virgins is all the virgins fall mm -hmm. asleep. Mm -hmm. They all get weary, but then five have oil, they're prepared, and the five don't. Mm -hmm. And then the five that are prepared and that are wise go with Christ, right? And then the, when he returns, and the ones who don't are left on the earth. And I think that there's another good parallel to this. Um, let me see if I can pull this up. How about this idea of all the events happening at the same time? Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 29. Okay. So again, think about the parallel here between uh, the events happening with the ark going up and the floods washing the people away, happening at the same time. See that, uh, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who, are warned them, who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So long story short, the world is going to be shaken, but we're part of the kingdom that's unshakable. So then we stay, we stay put, the others are swept away. That's essentially, and then the world is redeemed through that. So anyways, that's the gist there. And so again, I think that you can't just isolate it to just the fall of Jerusalem alone. Though you could, the world, when Jerusalem, we know, do know in Revelation that Jerusalem is that heavenly city that's returning mm -hmm. as regarding that the whole earth would be like Jerusalem, basically. Um, so with that in mind, it's like the restoration of Jerusalem is at hand. So that's the reason why you have another parallel. It's not just Jerusalem, it's 80, 70. It's Jerusalem, eternity, 80. I don't know yeah, what you the want way, to call it. The way it's supposed to be. The <laughs> yeah, way that it right. is archetypally God's city. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's good. I, I really have, in, in terms of the big question itself, I don't really have much more to add. I think, I think yeah. you did a good job. All right, guys. So I know that this topic gets really dicey and really emotional, but I want to know what you think. Let me know what you think about Matthew 24. Let me know if there's anything else that you want us to delve into or any other scriptures that you want to bring up related to this issue that you'd like me and Matlock to kind of chime in on or discuss with you. And uh, until next time, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.